0: Hey guys, and welcome back to a solo podcast where I'll be taking your Instagram questions again. Thank you very much for tuning in and asking some fantastic questions. We're going to start as usual with a little bit of an update on myself. Where am I at? What am I doing? And how am I getting on? So, things are going pretty good, to be honest. Can't complain. I've just basically hit a deload. So, I am deloading over the next week. Um, I actually will probably perform a... Balance of, well, I am going to perform a balance of a few extra days off to alleviate the pressure off some little niggles that I'm carrying at the moment. It's not so much my hip anymore, it's more so I've got a little bit of a niggle in my upper slash mid back. Um, just like running up my mid back, there's a little bit of tightness and soreness there. So I'm seeing both my Cairo and getting a sports massage on that. Over the coming days and the thing is with those treatments more importantly the sports massage I want to just allow the work to take its effect and I don't want to train on top of that and create more soreness and more inflammation even if it was a deload session it's going to be creating a degree of soreness um, and inflammation in that area so I'm going to give it the rest that it needs to get better and then hopefully get back into things uh, the mid- mid to front end of of next week so and I'm just feeling it in general Uh, my general signs of dealing a deload is just being very fatigued throughout the day and usually when I'd be like really up for things with regards to work I'm a little bit more held back I still absolutely love what I do but I just find this overarching feeling of like dragginess throughout my day and especially upon wake So, I wake up and instead of like getting up a bed, uh, getting up out of bed and like being really sort of like lively and motivated about that, I find myself just pulling myself out of bed a little bit more than I usually would do. Of course, training and recovering is meant to be hard. We're kind of meant to feel tired at some points, but not all the time. And the most important thing I think is the trend that that fatigue follows so if you're seeing like your normal fatigue and then it starts to climb and then you know that is that then sets the tone for a consistent week of feeling like that you're probably there or thereabouts needing a deload and i am of the perception of wanting to pull back before it gets too bad not after and i've done it many a time where i pull back too late and i get injured most likely, very like bigger injuries as opposed to niggles. So niggles then turn into injuries, and following that, I get sick, and I hate being sick. So I'm gonna nip it in the bud. Hopefully, touch wood before I get sick and before I get a, a bigger injury. But yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll still be training some of my sessions, um, but for the ones uh, for pull. So to, to alleviate this 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 upper back niggle. I'm going to probably not train that session at all. Um, just let it rest, let it get better. It's already feeling pretty damn good today. It's just upon wake, it's very tight. Um, so I'm just allowing that to, to rest up. But we get niggles. These are real things. And not everything is always sunshine and rainbows and perfect. And you know, when you're pushing strength and PBs on on new things that you, know, you haven't done before, you're ultimately going to encounter something at some point. And it's just about working around that as best you possibly can. So Cairo, physio, etc. getting uh, educated people to look at it, finding good Kairos, because there's a lot of meh ones out there. And I'm, I think I've got, found a pretty good guy here, which is good. And uh, yeah, so I've got that later today. And I've also got a podcast with Jan fries uh, which is going to go up soon, I imagine. I'm pretty sure he's pretty speedy with his uploads. So I've got a podcast with him being a guest, primarily talking about mindset for bodybuilding. And I've also got a podcast recently up with the Female Fitness Podcast with Sammy and Danny. And that was all talking about peaking for female athletes. So check that one out if you're interested in listening to that. I'll I'll try and link that one below if I I remember at the end of of this edit. Okay, so let's crack in to the questions for today. I'm going to take as many as I can. I'm literally going to take them from the bottom up. So if your question isn't included, sorry and ask it sooner next time. <laughs> so I've got a lot, so I'll try and get through as many as I can. So Carl Maguire asks, should you prioritise main movements? So obviously the answer to this question is pretty simple in the sense that we should definitely be prioritising our bigger bang for our buck movements. So it's more so like the, the way that people want to learn out of this question is why. So Multi-joint, big compound movements is what's going to ultimately teach you movement patterns very well, and it's also what's going to probably accrue the most density and tissue across the board, whilst not wasting as much time as you would waste if you were just primarily doing isolations. Your work capacity for isolations is much higher than it is for compounds, okay? So you'd have to be in the gym for a long, long time to get all of those isolations done to accrue enough workload to grow tissue. So when we look for bang for our buck, we look for big compound movements. Now, ultimately, we want to be performing compound movements that allow us to progress. So they're pain-free, they're injury-free movements. And if we can keep these uh, in our programming for as long as possible, rinse out as much progressions as we possibly can, that's going to see an accrual in tissue. So... Let's say for an example, we take a back squat. You know, when I I was like, you know, 16, 17 years old, 100 kilos was a heavy back squat for me. Now it's a warm up, And what's changed as a result of that? My legs are now much bigger than they were at 16 years old. Now, that is a simple overload of a movement pattern over time. It's a very simple process. But if I was just doing leg extensions, of course, I would have accrued tissue in my quads because I would have got stronger. The limitation would have occurred when i had to perform f- 10 to 20 sets of leg extensions in one session just to accrue in- enough quad volume for you know for potentially growth whereas you know we can do a back squat we can do you know three four sets of a back squat that's enough to 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 to, to you know put most people in a, in a pretty deep recovery hole so Trying to look at movements that you can do pain-free, you can do consistently, that you can do at a bunch of different gyms as well, I think is important because a lot of people travel. I have a lot of clients that do travel, different gyms, different environments. I think it's very important that we do stick to the main movements as much as possible. Okay, so yeah, Carl, definitely prioritise your main movements, logbook them, and then go from there. Cool, so next question I'm gonna take is unfortunately Stephen your question on transitioning from cutting to bulking. I've covered that a lot of times in these podcasts. So anyone that listens consistently will just get annoyed. So I'm gonna take the next question, which is on top five things that piss me off in the gym. And I, I think thinking of five is is is, is fairly difficult to be honest because I kind of ignore them and. I don't let things that piss me off in the gym get to me but I would say that I find it ugh, I'm not going to discuss five because I think that's you know one going to take too long because I like explaining stuff so I'm going to say my number one issue so my number one issue is people that just don't get why they're why they're in there and they, they don't get the progressive element of being in a gym environment so the amount of people that still, despite the amount of, you know, knowledge and awareness out there for progressively overloading and adding tension and and allowing yourself to progress in the crew tissue, people still go in and do the same stuff every single week with the same loads, the same angles, the same like the, the same workouts with the same load, with the same reps, all the time. Every single session. And they don't hit PBs. They don't push for PRs. I think every single trainee, as they go into a year of training, especially if they're in a surplus, should set tangible lifting goals. You should set something that's pretty absurd at the start of the year and work your arse off until you achieve that goal. Like, you should set things that, the, the front end of the year, scare the living daylights out of you. And a lot of people don't want to do that because it's scary. It's, it's like unknown territory. Doing something you've not done before is is like there's always that feeling of will i be able to do it um can i push my body this far and half the time the answer is yes you can actually take your body that far and you can push like that um, and it's just very frequent that a lot of people do not do that and i find that the most frustrating thing in the gym that there's a lot of people out there that could be making a lot of progress and potentially have a lot of genetic based potential you know you see some of these people that look very very good but are doing the very similar workouts every single week that's just frustrating because they're not capitalising on what they could have. Um, Ultimately, they're making their own decision, you know, if they want to do that, if they want to train like that, it's absolutely more than fine. But for the most part, that does irritate me as a trainee that works very, very hard. And I even think that for me, like myself, I don't have significantly good genetics. I think a lot of what's come to me is off a basis of hard, hard work and very consistent and accurate and smart work. And I think that that's, yeah, something that just gets me, grinds my gears <laughs> a little bit in the gym for sure. So next question comes from Alistair, which is on uh, basically thoughts on tracking with people with disordered eating. So it really depends as to what the current issue is within disordered eating. Obviously, we have, we have restriction and we have Overeating. So we have people who overeat and in a disordered way. um, This could potentially result in some form of uh, making themselves sick or just generally like binging and purging kind of scenarios, which ultimately I think that that requires a professional to come in and help with those people. I don't think that those people are fit for a coaching scenario, especially an online coaching scenario, unless that. That online coaches is suitable for the task in the sense that they've either got a wealth of experience within that within that sector, um, or they are actually you know a practitioner uh, that helps people with disordered eating. So that's a caveat for a prerequisite or for 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 someone who wants to be coach. Now, if we're talking about simply disordered way of eating, which is not necessarily a harm to their human health, so perhaps something like hoarding calories for the evening. Like, something like that. Just a very minor issue with food. Like, maybe just a, a sort of a slight a slight issue with relationship with food. I personally think that those individuals can still track, but they have to be very mindful in the sense that if tracking is exaggerating the issue, then there's an issue there, okay? Then, then probably removing the tracking in some way, it's probably going to do them favours. But I think most people can get away with tracking based on the fact that actually a lot of the time people with slight tendencies to like you know have a bad or bad or a poor relationship with food sometimes actually tracking improves things because it gives them a a sense of psychological stability like or or their mindset is more stable because when you see it a lot of the time like people that you know, just generally don't have a good relationship with food, have a slightly disordered way of eating, they usually, like, need something to, like, just get them into structure and get them into good habits, and, you know, ultimately, it would be lovely for most people to be able to not track and have a great relationship with food and, you know, be able to potentially intuitively eat or something like that. Um, Amelia Thompson's done some great podcasts with three three different podcasts, Muscle Mentor's one, um, female fitness podcast, and uh Vicky Masita's podcast. She did three. They're all on very similar topics and she discussed a lot of things there which are really, really good in terms of like how to get into intuitive eating. She also talked a little bit about eating disorders and things like that. So they're more than worth checking out. But my my perspective is that you've really got to just fit the individual here. And sometimes, like ultimately you care like if you're coaching this person, you're caring about their health first and foremost. So every time you make a decision, make uh, you you make a decision with this person. It's got to be for the fir- the primary goal. If someone's got some degree of issue, even if they're very underweight. Now I do coach a few people that are very underweight. They perhaps have small tendencies and issues with food. I wouldn't say they have a full blown eating disorder. They perhaps have in the past, which we have to be very careful. Now and if I'm not heading in the right direction with this person, it's a no-go anymore. I'm not coaching that person. If I'm not heading in the right direction with them and I can't help them, they need to seek help from a professional um, in that area. But for the most part, you know, you kind of need to like work in this um, balance of like giving them slightly something that they want and also what they need. It's a balance between the two. And sometimes I think a lot of coaches give them too much of what they need, and not enough of what they want, so that the buy-in is low. And when the buy-in is low for someone to do something, when they've got it the slight issue, uh, they're going to sort of like really, really, really struggle to adhere. And ultimately, however which way you go about it, adherence is going to be what is going to take this person forwards. Adherence and compliance. So that's why there's, I think, in my opinion, a, a, slight, a slight balance between giving them what they need and what they want. And I hope that, that makes sense, Alistair, there, mate. So I will cover the next question, which is, I've, I, you know, I've answered this one a few times, but I think I'll give my, you know, current stance on it. So it's basically how to set up a mini cup. So percentage of calories to cut, use all your tools all at once. You know, do use your, all your tools at once. Now, with a mini-cut, what is the goal? The goal is to get back into a position to gain tissue. So this is a moment in time where we cannot fuck up in terms of l- length in this phase. If we spend too long in a mini-cut, what are we doing? We're taking away pri- prime time from accruing tissue. Now, the overarching goal in an off-season phase or in a, a, a muscle-building phase, is funnily enough, building muscle. And are you building muscle when you're in a calorie su- calorie deficit? No. Regardless of how well your gym performance is going, yes, you may build some tissue, but very minimal. You're only going to maximise tissue growth when you are in a surplus, provided you are a natural athlete. Okay, So if we think about it, we literally, and this is frustrating for some people, because the psychological attachment to dieting down, you know, having having things like, you know, a leaner face, having a, a tidier midsection, having, you know, an, a more aesthetic and appealing look is very, very attractive. And it's why people do mini cuts for way too long. You know, they start a mini cut in the aim to get, you know, a few pounds off in four to six weeks and then it turns into a cut. And I've been there and done that. You know, my mini cut last year, I did six weeks and I think I continued it for eight before someone told me, just like, AJ, you're done, stop mini-cutting, and I had to have an external perspective on that, uh, because I was getting carried away, and it's very easy to get carried away with a mini-cut, super easy, so you can't can't get carried away, it needs to be an in and out process, you need to get it done, and get back to gaining, because especially if you're under muscled if you're under muscled well guess fucking what next time you step on stage in your category you will be under muscled again and i see this time and time again people saying i'm under muscled then they do a mini cut and they do a mini cut for like 12 weeks fantastic you've just wasted 12 weeks of your off season i mean some of those may have been beneficial but it would have been a lot more beneficial if you got it done gone out, and got back to gaining, because ultimately, you're not going to improve, you're not going to change your stage look, if you are mini cutting too frequently, and too often, okay, I've done one single mini cut, in this entire off season, okay, and I, I, I finished my prep in November, so I've done November, to all the way to March, with one single mini cut, okay, one single mini cut, and I don't, I think a lot of people are potentially using them too frequently as a get-out process to make themselves look better, acutely, like momentarily look better. Like you have really got to focus on the long-term vision when you're in a gaining phase. And unfortunately, it's fucking hard to do that because you look shitter. The natural game is hard because you look when you're looking when you're when you're heavier. You look smaller. You look softer. Everything looks worse than when you're lean. So. Your attachment to being lean again is just there. It's always there. I want to be lean right now. And I, look at, I even look at myself in this bloody video. I'm like, I don't like the way that I look that much. But I'm cool with it because I'm the strongest I've ever been. And I know there's muscle underneath. I know there is. There's got to be muscle underneath. I've applied the basic principles of accruing tissue. And I'm going to keep doing that until I'm like above 190 pounds. And that will mean that I've pushed my body weight to whole new levels and I think that that's what's going to make a big difference the next time I step on stage, is doing that that process, you know, pushing my body to places it hasn't been before, I believe that if your previous off-season max body weight was 180 pounds, and you expect to come back looking different next time, provided that 180 didn't make you look like a beached whale, you need to go above that, you need to go above and beyond that, you need to visit new territory, that new territory, is what what is it going to bring you, probably new muscle, and that's what a lot of people don't want to do, because it's scary. It's the same thing as your logbook. Your logbook will start to scare you in your off-season. And people don't want to keep going in for the sessions, because they're fucking scary. Um, and this is what you need to be doing, okay? So, honestly, I think uh, I've gone on a complete side tangent here, as usual. But the mini-cup, we should be looking to go fairly aggressive with it. We should be looking, so let's say, no, let's say my, you know, my calories right now are just under 4,000, Um I would cut my calories back down probably to just over 2,000, so say I'm gaining fairly significantly on, you know, 4,000 and above, that's a large deficit, you know, I'd I'd aim to create at least a 1,000 calorie deficit, Um, I know that's a ginormous deficit, and some people might not respond to that too well, and I've talked about this on my member site with regards to females especially, in the sense that a lot of them don't seem to respond too well when i put a mini cut in an aggressive deficit because the stress the stress response and the cortisol response to dieting is higher in some females and they tend to just hold a load of water and don't seem to mini cut that efficiently so i have a few people like that that won't do mini cuts and would be doing a slower deficit still an aggressive deficit but not quite as fast as i put some other people through it depends on the situation but for me, I know that I'd respond pretty damn well. I'd drop fairly fast. If I was to drop my calories down to mini cut levels, right now, I'd probably drop about five pounds in the first week and then I'd go from there trying to get off just over a percentage of my body weight per week and I'd do as much as I can to get that done. I'd also look at probably adding in some cardio. Uh, The reason why I'd add in some cardio is just because I'd want to try and improve cardiovascular fitness during that phase as well. And I'd also want to try and get my Uh, From a perspective of like insulin sensitivity and potentially like you know our our resting heart rate as well, I'd want to try and improve as much biofeedback as possible because the only thing that we're or that one of some of the main things that we're looking at to improve during a mini cut is not just body composition relative, it's biofeedback relative too. So it's you know heart rate variability, it's our resting heart rate, it's our fitness, it's our general health markers, it's potentially our blood pressure it's potentially our blood, blood glucose, so there's a few things that we can use as trackers to potentially see us in a better position at the end of that mini cut, not just from a body composition perspective. Okay, cool. So I'm going to leave that question now and move on to the next one. So have I found a certain body part to respond well to higher volumes versus some body parts responding better to lower volumes? Uh, so, demo, like, good, good question here. Um, in my perspective, there are certain body parts that can handle more volume, thus they respond better to higher volumes. So, you're mostly looking at smaller body parts for this. This makes sense because when we look at the systemic response to training a muscle group, we're looking at creating like whole body fatigue or central fatigue, central nervous system fatigue from training for specific body parts. So let's say we, we try to train our quads at a very, very high volume threshold, and we went above and beyond where our potential MRV is, we'd see who, huge detriment to not only our next leg session, but also our preceding upper body sessions, because our central nervous system fatigue would be high, okay? Or our systemic fatigue would be high, okay? So when we're looking at acute fatigue, we can create maybe more acute fatigue in smaller body parts because the systemic fatigue is lower, right? So let's take the side delts for, for, from a perspective. I think the side delts can respond very, very well to pretty extreme volume amounts. Um, I think you can go up to like 30 sets for the side delts And not really have huge detriment in terms of recovery. Now, do you really want to do 30 sets for your side dials per week? Um, Probably not. It's a very time restrictive thing if you try and fit 30 sets across the course of the week. Uh, Does everyone need 30 sets for their side dials to to respond? Absolutely not. Do I think they respond well to high rep ranges? Yes. So, therefore, you could do more high rep range work and less sets because you're doing a lot of volume within those sets. Um, I think sets of like, 20 to 30 really work well for smaller body parts like the rear delts the side delts um, potentially even the calves as well. The reason why I think this works is also is because we develop a better mind-muscle connection when we're patterning that movement again and again and again with higher rep range work. So if you're looking to do something that's gonna maybe get a body body part to respond that's stubborn, try higher rep range work. Try, you know, mya reps or rest pause sets. Um, you know, high volume is not the only way or method to potentially look to grow more tissue in an area. We can look at a vast, a vast amount of intensity methods that we can use to, to grow body parts that are lagging. Okay, so there's a few things to consider there, Demo. Um, I also think, funnily enough, not necessarily high volume maybe high volume within the session but maybe not high volume within the week so maybe across one session you do you know a decent amount of work for that body part but over the end of the week it's not you know crazy high from the from a sort of a general perspective and comparative to other body parts but i do think that hamstrings respond to Uh, So this is really not necessarily high volume within the session, it's more high rep work. I think the hamstrings do respond well when trained at high repetitions. Again, a very similar thought process to that of the side delts and the rear delts. So next next time you do legs, do a seated leg curl and do a couple of sets of like 8 to 10, so your loading sets, and then back off. Back off and do a set of 25 plus, and tell me how your hamstrings feel after doing a set of 25 plus on a seated leg curl, they will be like feeling completely different to what they've ever felt like before after a set of eight to 10. They just feel swollen and blown up. And I think there's something to be said for the metabolite buildup that you get from that. I don't think this is something you can do all the time. This is something I, so I rotate between a rest pause set and a very, very high rep set for my hamstrings when I start my leg sessions with a seated leg curl. So I have legs one, high rep up, I have legs two, rest pause, okay? So I have a two intensity method, two intensity uh, method approach to my hamstring training. And I think that's important as well for things like the side delts. So I'll have again, push one will feature a set where I do a high rep set followed by a drop on a lateral raise, and then I'll do a, a lower rep set, Followed by a rest pause. Um, in my rest pause sets, very similar to the way that Scott runs runs the drill with the rest pause sets, and potentially Dante as well. Um, in the sense that it's normally five deep breaths uh, between each rest pause set, and the goal is to get you know a peak rep range fail, take the five deep breaths, stick with the same load, go again to fail, five deep breaths, stick with the same load, go again to fail. Um so that's another intensity method that i do like that i think weaker body parts can respond well to so let me know what you think about that demo uh give some of those things a shot give some of those rest pause things a shot um like i said i think the the, the you know the side delts can respond to higher volumes the hamstrings the rear delts um and that, the, those are my thoughts so yeah hopefully some of those things help and you help like the, those body parts start to blow up uh, another actual anecdote thing is i think that some people can respond quite well when they go through phases of training their quads at higher volumes um so the quads again the overall systemic fatigue that you're going to create from training your quads is high so you to be very careful with this but i think things like lower load high repetition training for the quads can again prove beneficial in terms of growing them to whole new levels so for example uh, you could use bfr bands i've got that in with a few of my clients that have weaker quads um, you could use bfr so um uh, use the uh um, the name slips me um use basically uh, like you can use straps you can use lifting straps or the um, blood flow restrictions bands, which I've forgotten the name of. Um, I know what they're called, but I've just forgotten. It slipped my mind. So, yeah, you could use those I looked and look to accrue blood volume, and that's another good approach for, you know, potentially building up a, a weaker, weaker body part. Cool. So, next question comes from uh, Michael. Period of maintenance. A good idea after dropping 40 pounds of body weight before. So, that that is a good question. Um, should you maintain after dropping a large amount of body weight? Um, I think that you should definitely look to see what your next goal is. Is my my question here? So after dropping forty pounds, what do you want to do next? So do you want to gain muscle, and do you want to stay forty pounds lighter? What is 40 pounds lighter like looking for you? Like, what's it looking like? So let's say I dropped 40 pounds now. I'd be in contest shape. Would I want to maintain that if I hadn't got any more shows? Absolutely not. Like, so for, for my answer is very, very much like I consider all factors. So someone would read that and think, oh, okay, he's four, dropped 40 pounds. He needs a diet break. He probably needs to maintain, which is very right. You, know, you probably do need to maintain but if you're very lean, you probably need to get in a fucking surplus immediately because you've got not only a bunch of diet fatigue, but you're also in a position where you are far away from your body's homeostasis. And there's gonna be a lot of um, like issues from the fact that you've probably accrued a decent amount of RED or relative energy deficiency. So you're gonna have issues with you know, potentially rolling, like how long you've spent there. You're gonna have issues with uh, the hormonal adaptations of that. You're going to have, if you stay there for very a very long time period, you're going to have issues with like bone density and, you know, you're going to roll into quite a few significant issues if you're staying there for a long period of time and you are very, very lean. And it's funny how many people do that, like especially younger kids, like I've had a lot of, um, you know, I've got a, an 18 year old and a 19 year old at the moment, both from the States that I'm coaching and I've stayed way too lean for way, way, way too long and i just think they maybe like the idea of staying lean or online they're convinced that you have to stay lean to accrue tissue and if anything at that age you the that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing you should be getting pretty damn fluffy and growing a lot because that's where a lot of your initial growth and in tissue will come from is those initial phases of, of pushing up your body weight so yeah i i think for you it very much depends on the situation if you are 40 pounds down and you're not in you know crazy crazy shape you should probably look to maintain if you want to lose more so let's say you know you are coming from a you know perspective of being very overweight you've dropped 40 pounds and you want to continue to lose more weight because you maybe hit a plateau then maintain for at least a month and then diet again and you know go from that settling point so try and regain some of the hormonal adaptations and you know hunger hormones especially, uh, regain some of those over a month of a diet break, you'll definitely do that with a month off, um, not a month off, a month of diet breaking, so a month of maintenance calories and then you drop back down and you go again, um, so that's my perspective on on proceedings there, uh, Michael I hope that makes sense, um, so it depends on your current situation, feel free um, if you want to DM me on Instagram and send me a few photos and, and get, get my opinion on sort of where you're at and whether you should maintain or not, um, if you are very lean, you need to get into a surplus pretty immediately to start to fully recover some of the adaptations that you've had through dieting. So, uh, Demo again asks, your routine after your last set, do I stretch and do I cool down? It's a good question, actually. Do I stretch, do I cool down? So, stretching is something that I have been doing for uh, quite, like, quite, like over the last month, um, quite a bit. So, I think that stretching after a workout is not 100% necessary, I don't think you need to do it, um, there is some uh, more research coming out fairly soon on, on stretching, especially like isometric holds under load, which is a form of stretch, so for example like a um, an extreme stretch like they've done in like dog crap training, um, and I think that this, you know, from a logical perspective, may increase blood flow, may increase nutrient nutrient delivery. And if that's going to have a small effect on recovery, you most likely will want to take that. So that's a reason to maybe stretch. And alongside that, I think stretching in general, if we're looking to have a good degree of range of motion in our training, and we know the research on range of motion is pretty strong to suggest that the more range we can get, The better in terms of creating muscle damage, which is obviously one of the main mechanisms of hypertrophy. Then, you know, if we're missing out on that, then I think, you know, we should try and get it um, by being able to stretch more, by being able to be more supple. And I think that, yeah, more people should be stretching. One of my favorite routines is just to do basic glute, ham, quad, calf, and uh, lower back stretch and also a hip stretch, and I do those most mornings at the moment, because it's funny as I've felt more and more beat up after, you know, my sessions, and waking up feeling pretty beaten up as well, getting to the end of this sort of mesocycle or phase of training, um, I've just been stretching more, because I feel like I need to, and unfortunately, if you want to improve your range of motion, you want to improve your ability to, to move, you should be doing this Year round, you shouldn't just be doing it when you feel beaten up. So, I'm not a good example when it comes to stretching. I am a pretty good example when it comes to doing the, the, the DC stretches and the extreme stretches because I do them a lot. Um, ever since I, I trained with Dan Bastic a few times, he was doing them, they were a part of his program, and I really liked them ever since I did them with him. Uh, every time I train with Cuba, he does them as well. So, it's sort of like been forced into my routine as well. which. I I do like and I do I do definitely see a benefit in terms of potential recovery um, because the next day like of course you know you do still have that delayed onset muscle soreness but I feel like it's almost diminished slightly and I feel less tight and stiff after doing some form of stretching post workout whether it's an extreme stretch or not I'd be very careful the extreme stretches just because you are putting your body under a stretch that no if it's under load as well just gonna be cautious. because you don't want to pop or tear anything hence why you would do them after you've done all the work for that body part in in that day you know you don't just hop out of bed and do an extreme stretch because your muscle is not supple at that point point. your ability to or your chances of tearing something is pretty significant um, if you do do something like that upon wake so uh, even before i stretch in the morning i usually get up i hydrate i have i i maybe do even a bit of work have a coffee and then i stretch because i feel like if i'm just waking up getting out of bed and then stretching my issue is that i'm going to hurt myself because i'm very tight from just you know being asleep and being in bed for you know best part of eight hours so yeah i would say that after workouts in the morning um get yourself into a nice stretch routine and I believe that that can enhance your ability to move and have range of motion within your training sessions. Um, outside of that what is my routine post-workout? My routine is literally just to, to try and start to transition into a very relaxed state so if I'm on my own and we're ultimate I will put my headphones in usually and then I will begin my walk home. Um, I like the walk because it means that I can just relax So, with my headphones, I'll put in something like, um, some sort of, like, relaxing music. So, I have a few playlists on Instagram. I have, obviously, my top set playlist, and then I have a relaxing playlist. And I, I just play whatever's on there. Sometimes it's, like, Florence the Machine. Sometimes it's Ed Sheeran. Like, it's just chill, it's just relaxing music. Sometimes it's music that gets me, like, thinking and just, just relaxes me and makes me feel at ease. Um and yeah i just generally like that that's that's what works for me and that's what essentially starts to get my base or my heart rate back down a baseline because i'm not going to listen to like slipknot or death metal post workout that's all that's going to do is you know create more of a sympathetic response and then when i get home and try to start eating my not only my well, my appetite might not be in the place that it needs to be but my digestive system will not work as optimally as it would if I was to get my heart rate down a baseline and get a balance that nervous system response get back into more of a parasympathetic state you know this flicking of the switch is pretty important when we're in a post-workout scenario if we really do care about our recovery and you know funnily enough a lot of people online and this kind of pisses me off as well a lot of people online will take the mickey out of doing these things and those are the kind of people that think they can get by by just doing what people have done for like years and not taking things seriously um it's not so much people not taking things seriously for years it's more so they haven't had the knowledge that we have today and what i seem to think is that why are people so single-minded to think that the things that we now know and the things that we now have in terms of our our knowledge why the hell would you not capitalise on these things? You know, why 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 wouldn't you do these little things that might add up and create a marginal gain in the long term? You know, like why would you not try and get your heart rate down a baseline? All it takes is chilling out a little bit, listening to some relaxing music. Why would you not care about the autonomic nervous system and its role in bodybuilding? Why why would you ignore this? i just and why why would you then start taking the piss out of it on instagram saying that you know i've got to wait for my heart rate to get on a baseline to eat my meal like i don't get why that's funny or amusing it's not <laughs> it's not because it's it's just yeah just fucking simply is not and you know what like when these people go back on stage um one thing that i want to get across in this podcast that would be a nice thing for you guys to take away like Look at what people are doing and then, yeah, course does not meet correlation a lot of the time, but when you see someone that's been competing for like four years and competes every year and looks the exact same and then they start taking the mickey out of what other people are doing to optimise, start thinking whether that person is actually making as much progress as you would like. And then think about following the people that are making as much progress as you would like. Progress is relative. So some people will be very genetically endowed. They might take the piss out of these things. And they might still make, make, make fantastic progress. Unfortunately, this is the world. It's the world we live in. People will still make progress even if they're not, you know, potentially uh, doing everything that we do to make marginal gains. But if you're someone that doesn't maybe have elite level genetics and, you know, you still want to make the most of what you're doing, consider these little things, consider all the things that add up, consider the set or the intra-workout stretching, the extreme stretching, consider the role of the autonomic nervous system within bodybuilding, and flicking that switch between a sympathetic driven response when we train, and parasympathetic when we're resting, consider these things, guys, don't just like, Don't just think, oh, okay, well, you know, that probably doesn't matter that much. It does, it does. Like, every little thing adds up, you know. And when we're we're pushing our bodies to our limits, we really do have to add these little things up. Look at any elite level athlete and look at what they do. Do they consider these tiny things? Of course they do. If Usain Bolt wants to run faster in 100 meters than he ever has before, do you think he cares about the little things that add up? I think he does. So if you want to be an elite level bodybuilder, you want to win, you know, British final shows and go to worlds and win, you've got to kind of start considering these variables. You've got to treat yourself as an athlete, not as a, just a, you know, someone who likes the gym. You're not that person anymore if you want to win shows, you know, of course you still like training, you love the gym, but you're an athlete now, so take yourself seriously. Um, again, off on a tangent, but I hope that one helps. Okay. Okay. So a really good question here from Celine. So she asks, what is a good client? So what's a good client for me? Um, ultimately, it's what I kind of adhered, to alluded to in the, in the previous question. Uh, a good client for me, ultimately, is someone who adheres. And adherence is the bottom line. Like if someone adheres, they will get results. So I love clients that just do the do. You give them a plan, they go ahead and they fucking do it that's amazing, that's like the best thing ever, because you know the results will come in. A great client to me is also someone that has incredible passion for what they do. I absolutely love watching the check-ins, like, I, I hate to name names, but, you know, there's every one of my clients has an extreme passion, but someone who has, you know, very high amounts of passion about what he does is Christian, who, you know, does the check-in videos and is the crazy nutcase from Austria, and... The amount of passion that surges from his check-ins about his progress, about the gym, about training, even when he's done like, you know, he, he's in PT school at the moment, so physical therapy school. He has incredibly long days and he still has the time to make a, a, an amazing check-in video and just get so passionate about every single thing that he does You know, and I have so many clients like that. And, you know, like I said, I hate to name names because it feels like I'm calling him out as, you know, the best client. You know, Chris, I love you so much, but you're not the best client in the world. Every one of my clients is awesome. Of course, I have some people that in the past have been more difficult to work with and some people that maybe aren't as passionate about bodybuilding as others. And that's fine. And I don't have an issue with that at all. But what really lights my fire is when I see the passion the work ethic and you know that just that that drive that that internal fire, you know, it's kind of like I can on a tangent, but it's definitely 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 something that very much attracted me to being with Danny is because like obviously she's an extremely attractive girl, but she's also so passionate about what she does. She absolutely loves it. Um, I get to see that girl work her ass off every single day and that's what attracted me to her as an individual and you know uh, and and I want to be around people like that and I love working with clients that have and ooze that same passion and that same drive that same willpower and the want to be better the need to be better and that that to me makes it a fantastic client I know how much better they're going to be when they apply the principles that I'm going to put in front of them so yeah that that for me is what a superb client is about um, someone who just will be relentless and just won't give in and someone who wants to do the, these little things that add up you know that to me is a, a fantastic client um, at the same time it's a client that also cares about me and I know this sounds kind of selfish but at the end of the day, we do a very demanding job as coaches. Uh, I don't think a lot of people understand some of the things that we have to do, some of the hours that we have to work and some of the difficulties that that we face. And I like it when a client understands that and they say thank you and they appreciate my time and they communicate with me when they need me not just because they want to take my time up or you know and they save questions for when the questions are needed you know a client that understands the process and a client that understands that i am a coach first and foremost and that's my role and i think that's a really important factor when it comes to uh, a client I, I just i just think those things those things uh, selena so i hope that answers your question and to answer your other question um, you'll have to listen to the female fitness podcast. You also asked uh, foods that I would carb up on, so I answered that very in detail within the female fitness podcast. So you can check that out on their on their um, uh, iTunes. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just search the female fitness podcast, and you'll find my episode there. Um, make sure you give them a review as well because there's a good podcast. So, uh, Stefan, how far have I pushed my post workout carbs? uh without digestive issues um so i have pushed mine up to 200 max and i find funnily enough stefan that it's not really digestive issues it's more so it's gonna sound interesting this but it's more so cognitive issues so when i eat 200 grams or anything above 200 grams carbs post workout i feel like i can't can't do anything after that and I, I mean anything, I can't do anything, I feel like I've just, I, I will literally just sit down at that chair where I've eaten that meal and pass out because I feel just very like, I, I, and this actually is probably something to do with the digestive processes at play, making me feel tired because when you put that amount of food in your body, especially very high carbohydrate, very low fat, you're creating a very large insulin spike okay? And for your, for your body to deal with that, it's going to take a period of time for your blood sugars to start to level out. This can give you that feeling of tiredness or grogginess or, you know, maybe even feeling run down. That combined with obviously the intensity in my sessions that I provoke, this leads to feeling pretty tired, you know, pretty tired. And I find that actually having a post-workout meal of anywhere between 100 and maybe 150, max and then actually waiting an hour and then having another post-workout meal i find splitting those two meals up just not only aids digestion but also makes me feel better so my first post-workout meal is some form of rice based product uh, making up 120 150 grams of carbs um, and a little bit of fruit and some whey protein or egg whites, so a very easy to digest meal. My secondary post-workout meal consists of oats, whey protein, again, ideally, if I've had whey protein, it will be something else. I don't want to have any more servings than three servings of whey per day if I can avoid it. Um, so I'll have that. And I'll also have a bit of added fats to that meal as well to start to slow the digestive processes of that meal um, because we've had a very fast digesting meal followed by a slightly slower one an hour later is what I tend to like. Again, this helps satiety. Um, obviously in a diet phase, more more, more, more importantly there. Um, but also you know when we're looking at, then again, starting the recovery process, we've had the, the higher the higher bolus or the higher GI carbs. We can afford to have some lower GI carbs later into that setting, which will potentially start to help us in the recovery processes for not only that window in acute, not only in that workout in acute fashion, but also fueling ourselves up for the next day and the next sessions. Um, so that's the generally generally the setup that I like in the post workout window, um, and I hope that that helps um and then yeah like earlier so next question really revolves around dealing with anxiety uh with an injury and just wanting to train hard so this is something that i even have with niggles so right now with my upper back i think about it a lot i must admit and i think anyone that cares about their training uh really does care a lot about when their injury will be better or when it will be fixed. Um, I don't think I'm not a lot of people speak about how it makes them feel, but I must admit it makes me feel very down, very down when I'm when I'm dealing with a, a an actual injury, and uh, it's frustrating because we know we want to put absolutely everything into our training, and when we can't, you know, especially when we, you know, we have to pull back and we have to like rest an injury very frustrating, so I focus on what I've got, okay, and ultimately, the, the end of the day, Elliot, even if, so let's say you can't train ever again, this is horrible, this is like the worst circumstance you could have as a bodybuilder, right, you can't train ever again, you have something happen, you can't train ever again, what have you got, what have you still got, you've got a life, most likely, you know, provided you're not like literally can't train because you you're going to pass away or something like that which would be the worst circumstance in the world okay so you can't train let's say you've got a ginormous injury and you can't train for a long long time or not at all what else have you got what else what else have you got you've probably got you know family you've probably got people that care about you you've probably got a job and you've probably got a future and i know this sounds cliche but it's something that a lot of people i think need to think about when they're injured and something that would help most people is having some form of a gratitude journal so this is something that i like to keep myself um i actually do it in the form of just i know this is going to sound weird it's not actually something i've even said before but i kind of just speak to myself um not very frequently but at the end of the night i don't really have a gratitude journal i just speak to myself So I tell myself three things that I'm really happy for. Three things that went well in my day. Three things I'm just grateful for. And this provides a, just a feeling of like, just feeling happy, basically. Feeling like I've got gratitude for everything that's going on. Um, And I know that, you know, even if I was, you know, to, to be hit with some form of injury that would set me back, I know that I could still do what I do now. I could still do my work I could still coach loads of people and have a lot of fun within what I do from a bodybuilding perspective and does training make me who I am it does to a degree but I wouldn't lose who I am as a person just because I can't train with weights I don't think so um and just because I'm like if I was injured does that mean does that mean that it changes who I am or or what I stand for absolutely not you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything and i've been through several injuries both you know small and more large injuries and i've i know i know there's light at the end of the tunnel every single time this is what you've got to see like it's it's crazy there's there's there has been research done into the psychological effect of having or being told that you've got some form of illness. And what the timescales are on this illness. And whether people can see light at the end of the tunnel or not. And I think that, and like funnily enough this is, this is what I, and it's very difficult like when you have an issue that really is something very, very serious. It's very difficult to to try and think of the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and this is something that I've obviously had very close to home with with my mom and you know, try try the uh, for for her at the time when you know, the diagnosis happened and things like that for her to see light at the end of the tunnel of that was was uh, just the hardest thing I I've, I've ever seen someone try to try to think about because ultimately you know you want to be strong in that situation and you know this is obviously completely off the tangent of an injury but it's important because I saw what it's like to essentially lose everything and I want to kind of maybe end this podcast on this question because it's it's quite a big one when you when you see when you visibly like you're there and you see what it's like to lose everything you then start to realize how minor losing a small part of what you do or a small part of you as a person is and the more people realize this the better because then I think people will start to see the light more at the end of the tunnel when it comes to a very small or acute injury and Um, for the person that asked this question, I do not want you to feel bad about saying this, because so many people, including myself, get frustrated and down and upset when they're injured, I've even said it, I just said it before I talked about this, so I don't want you to feel bad about asking this whatsoever, and I don't want you to feel like I'm comparing it to something more serious, I'm not, that's not the way that I want to, 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 to portray this, but I want to make sure that people understand that there is always most likely with a, an injury, whether it be acute or chronic, some degree of light at the end of the tunnel. This is not something that will make you a different person. This is someone that will force you to become a stronger individual. And I hope that people can take that what It is understand that you will get through this phase. You will come out the other end and there is, there is, you know, lessons to be learned out of this for sure. And that will make you a better, that will make you a stronger, that will make you a awesome individual because your ability to hack these kind of things will just like be so much better once you've gone through it at least once or maybe even twice. Um, so yeah, I think that's very, very important for people to understand. Um, view it as, I know it sounds a bit weird, but view it as a bit of a challenge. How can you fix this? you know, like, I, when I get an niggle or an injury, I'm like, okay, how am I going to fix this, because I'm not dealing with this, like, I, I'm not, I'm not just going to sit here and live with this, I'm just going to fix it, so I, I do everything I can to fix it, um, funny enough, funny story, when I went to see my chiro for the first appointment, um, I was talking about my issue, and he was like, he asked me, so what are you doing to, to like, what have you done so far, and I was like, Well first off I got it a week ago and I booked in the appointment three days after feeling like it was an issue and secondly after that I've done every single stretch in the book to make it potentially better. then i've been applying heat and ice if i need to um then i've also been trying to follow rehab programs online for any issues like that um i've been looking into the potential causes of it so i can explain it better to you um i've been resting it on any movements that provide injury or pain um i've been having hot bars if i need to um i've i've been just doing absolutely everything and he was just like he would just sat there and like sort of sat back and said wow (laughs) you take this seriously don't I I was like yes I do because this is this is me this is like a lot of what I do is revolving around me being pain-free and injury-free I I don't like pain I don't want to you know I don't train to 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 feel consistent pain in an area I want to be you know fit and healthy I want to do this until I'm like 50 plus so for me I want to be pain-free so let's get to work and fix this um you know and i feel like working with people more educated than you in certain areas um especially when it comes to like osteos chiros physios finding good ones is probably going to be really key um because you know you ultimately will come again come against injuries and niggles um in my 2017 prep i injured my adductor pretty pretty severely i couldn't really squat below parallel without pain so i box squatted for like eight weeks and it was boring it was dull I had don't like box squats but I had to do it and I and I did it and I got it done and, and you know it's frustrating and, and I, but I've done it you know and I think that it's just you know you've got to work around these things don't don't see them as like a ginormous obstacle like this high see it as something this high like see it below you see it as something that you can overcome um mental fortitude at that point is 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 really really key um so yeah I will answer one more because it's from a previous client of mine, so I wanted to get get it answered. So this is on body weight in a gaining, gaining phase. So um, is it common for body weight to shoot up in a gaining phase? So significantly. Um, So like, you know, one week or let's say one week I was like 186 and the next week I was like 190. So I'd gone up like four pounds. So there is quite a few things that in a gaining phase, Will influence body weight. So obviously, inflammation is one of the biggest things because food volume and consistency within food is fairly similar. So we're not going to see huge fluxes in where we see food volume go in or go up or go down. It's going to be fairly similar amongst uh, in in the gaining phase. So especially if you're not eating out that frequently, sodium is going to be fairly similar. So is water. Um. So is potassium. So you know those influences on on body weight are going to be more so smaller than potentially in a in a diet where you'd have refeeds you'd have high days you'd have more wet more veg one day you'd have less veg one day etc so what what really is the factor in body weight is going to be the inflammatory response to training so i usually find like i am at my heaviest now because my inflammation is at its highest why i've been in a phase of hard training for 7 to 8 weeks i've not had a deload in that time period so when I deload, I tend to drop weight because I drop inflammation, I drop water weight that's been accrued from the training stresses. Uh, normally, after a leg day, you're probably going to find that your body weight is going to go up just because you'll hold on to a lot of the inflammatory response from you know the, the session itself. The systemic f- fatigue that you're creating is high. Again, you're just going to accrue a lot, of, uh, a lot of water weight from that. So that's going to be an, an influence. Then again, Body weight for individuals can be an interesting one to track, just because. Excuse me, just because um, some people tend to find that even in a diet phase, their body weight is like static, 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 and then it drops. And then some people in a gaining phase goes, it goes up, 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 up. It goes, sorry, goes static, 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 and then goes up, like really quite, you know, drastically. Um. So, so for you, I think maybe you're just an individual that holds for a while and then goes up and then holds for a while and then goes up what you've got to focus on is your monthly average so is this a trend are you going up four pounds every week of course if you are going up four pounds every week you need to sort something out you need to lower your calories um you're just on too much so if that's happening frequently that's that's the decision process but if you're not going up by that amount every single week and you just went up one week and then the next three weeks you stayed very similar like no, no issues, no issues there at all, um, so yeah, just being cautious of the trend is what I would say when it comes to body weight, but it is pretty normal for body weight to shoot up here and there with regards to being in a gaining phase, so yeah, I that's pretty much it in terms of what I would say there, um, yeah, so I am gonna leave that there, I will ask for more questions next time, uh, let me know your thoughts on whether you'd like to see more questions answered with shorter answers or whether you like my current approach to rambling on as much as I can on a topic. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know whether you enjoyed this episode. As always, guys, please do take a screenshot and put it on your Instagram story. Tag me in it. I love the day after posting up a podcast, resharing a load of people watching it. So if you can do that for me, that'd be amazing. Let's see if we can get good amount of likes on this one so hit the like button I know that George always does this and it seems to work well so hit the like button if you did enjoy this one leave any comments or questions below if you've got them and again I'll look forward to seeing you in the next one and and thanks so much for listening to all of this if you did Um, okay guys so chat to you soon and have a great rest of your week see you in a bit bye